Thanks for listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Soap here, joined by a 2010 fellow, another OG from a different class from San Francisco. Skylar Hudak is here to share a little bit about life up in the Bay and what's going on with her as we continue our Zag episode quest to have not just LA folks, but alums from all across the country join us. So let's get to it. All right, Skylar, I feel like there's been couple of San Francisco folks who come on and I like to try to have some sort of fight or tension with them about Southern <laughs> California and Northern California. Is that true with you? Do you have strong feelings one way or the other? So you're not going to get me to say anything mean about either side of this because although I'm born and raised in the Bay Area and San Francisco is truly the great love of my life, um, I went to school at UCLA. So I think the thing that I learned being in Los Angeles the first year was really difficult. Um, it was just a big shift. It was a big change. And then I think when you get in your car in LA and you get lost and you, you willingly get lost and you kind of navigate your way around and you, uh, you recognize that first of all, you know, you get to know the city better, but then also I think you kind of start to take LA with a grain of salt. Not, not everybody is in the industry. And the more that you get past that industry mentality, I think the more you just absolutely fall in love with Los Angeles. No, that is true. And I think it's uh, for me as someone who's directionally challenged, I always appreciated that the ocean is, is West and you can find your way there, which makes it easy to, to kind of make it through. Um, yeah, that's true. So then you got connected to the NLC. How exactly? Um, so, you know, that's a great question. I actually don't remember who it was that first brought me in. Um, but I, I pretty quickly after I found NLC met Adam Borelli. Yep. Um, and he and I became friends and he became, uh, you know, kind of a mentor in some ways of mine. And so I did NLC at a pretty pivotal moment in my life. Um, I, I was, working for a nonprofit that did education policy in San Francisco. And I had this, we, we started NLC in, you know, I guess late December, early January, and we're reading Life Entrepreneur. And as I'm reading that book, I get this job offer to go work for Jerry Brown for governor in 2010. And uh, they were going to, you know, there's not going to be a big salary. I was going to be one of the first hires the campaign made. And it was a really big risk to take. Um, but reading Life Entrepreneur and being in that NLC class kind of motivated me to take that risk. Um, and that made, you know, a huge, huge, huge difference in the trajectory that my life has been on. And then what's your feeling now that the governor is transitioning into the twilight for real this time? <laughs> what was your, your, your take on his uh, years in office in the second go around? You know, when we were working on the campaign, I think my parents had kind of set me aside and they are both from Montana, but they decided to raise their kids born. You know, we were born and raised in Walnut Creek, California. And um, when they decided to bring us up in California, they came here for the opportunity. They, um, my mom was a teacher in Oakland. She put my father through night law school. Then she went to night law school. They saw California as a place of opportunity. And in 2010, California was not looking like a place of opportunity at that time. And they sat my sister and I down and said, you know, girls, we know you love California, but if you are going to make a life for yourselves, it may have to be somewhere outside of this state. 
And that was in part what motivated me to work for Jerry was, you know, I want to be a part of fixing California. And I just could not possibly be more proud of the mark that Jerry's left on California, the way that he has stabilized and significantly improved the financial state of the, of the state. But also, um, you know, I think for him, it's really shown us what it means to be an elected official who doesn't have their eye on the next office, how powerful that is to making choices that are, are really good for as many citizens as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. So then what's your take, knowing that things in many ways have improved since the years that he came into office, but you still see stories, still see headlines, like X amount of people moving out of California, going to other states that have more affordable housing or have better transportation or this or that. Like As someone who has such strong ties here and has been really in the inside baseball of, of what's gone into trying to make the state better, what's your usual reaction or thinking when you see stories like that? I mean, I think that's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch how difficult it has become to live in California. It's something that I see every single day. Um, I live in a studio apartment in San Francisco and there have legitimately been times where I have had to decide between having health insurance and paying for my electricity bill. Um, and those are the things that I think more people, those are struggles that more people have than we would like to admit to ourselves. And statistics can't fully capture just how challenging it is to live a life where you have to make those decisions. Um, and, and so I think it's great that California has gotten stabilized. I think sometimes we forget how far we've come in the stabilizing of this economy um, and the growing and thriving of this economy. But the problems that have come along with that success are huge issues of affordability. And now it's time for some really bold leadership to tackle those issues. And then in terms of housing uh, housing, uh, affordability, what kind of things would you want to see happen? Is it updating all zoning plans? Is it elegant density? Is it uh, getting rid of, of parking in the city proper? Like, What kind of things do you think would make the biggest difference in the shortest amount of time? I think California right now has an opportunity to redefine what cities are for the next century. And we absolutely have to build. We have to think more regionally. Um, Los Angeles, I think, is better at this than than the San Francisco Bay Area in many ways. Um, one of the things that the San Francisco Bay Area has to start to do is think regionally. Um, and, and we absolutely have to build more. There's no question. There has to be significantly more building. Um, there's really no reason to not build significantly more. But as we're building... Let's not make the mistakes that we made maybe in the 70s where we're throwing up concrete buildings that discourage community. We have to be thinking about what makes healthy, vibrant, livable cities. Um, And so bringing in not only the people who are urban planning experts, but also consulting with neighborhoods. And I think that's one of the things that gets lost in the movement is we, we have to do the work of building the bridges between neighborhoods and, and, and bringing those neighborhoods into the future. Um, that's one of the things that I've done a lot of in San Francisco is getting really deeply involved with community groups. Um, and when you get involved as a millennial with community groups, those community groups are normally your parents' age. The people and the involvement in those groups is you know, very much um, baby boomer and in some cases silent generation 
And so we wonder why there's such a chasm between the people who want to grow and develop and build because we see growth as a good thing. And people who have owned these homes or been in these communities building these neighborhoods for 40, 50, 60 years. And it's because we're not doing the hard work of bridging those communities. Yeah. When we come back, I want to ask a little bit more about what actually happens in those meetings and what kind of conversations you're having and what messages you feel like are really, really landing on that front. Um, Thanks for listening to The Zag. We'll be right back. Yeah, because we have so many different generations represented, different mindsets, different places that people are in their lives, what messages actually do resonate the most when you're trying to encourage bridge building or in trying to encourage people to take maybe a more progressive view on where the city and the state have to go in the future for everyone able to have a good shot at affordable housing and being able to move around? I think that some of the issues that come up is, you know, I think that when we get super focused on um, how many wonderful things can be achieved with progressive policies, um, sometimes we're not doing the diplomacy work of interfacing with the people who are digging their heels in. And that's work that I really enjoy. I really enjoy um, meeting with community groups, meeting with people who have been doing, you know, who really, the way I see it is, these are people who were doing this work 40 years ago. They were the progressive change makers 40 years ago. And sometimes I think they've lost sight of, um, of the fact that the people who are now coming in and making this progressive change are, are just younger versions of themselves. And if you can make a connection with those people, um, you can either bring them on board or at a minimum, they'll be able to, um, to, they're much less likely to give you the level of resistance that they would if you hadn't done the outreach in the first place. And I think sometimes we don't do effective outreach to those communities. And I think, you know, that, that is the hard work of organizing. And then do you get any, or maybe I ask you this, do you see any change in how people interact with you as somebody who's been, engaged in activism and engaging community for, for many years. Have you seen any dramatic shifts since Trump was elected on how communities in general are deciding to tackle problems or even how they approach meetings or how they approach the idea of resistance? Like what kind of change have you seen since November, 2016? Sadly, I don't think that um, we have all gotten the message that, that part of it really is doing that outreach. Um, I think one of the lessons from 2016 really should be, you know, uh, again, I have family that's in Montana and they vote incredibly conservatively and we have very, very different views on things. But what I found sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table when I was the one who was getting peppered with questions as, as a 13 year old about why I would be a vegetarian or, you know, why I'm such a bleeding heart liberal, um, you know, you, you find the common ground and then you work backwards from there. Right. Um, you find the thing that you know makes that person um, happy or you know is a shared value with that person. And then you say, gosh, I always thought that you would feel this way about this issue. For example, I was uh, I had an email exchange with my uncle and he sent me a really kind of offensive letter about, um, about the Kate Steinle verdict. And he, he said, this is what, what you and your people are doing to San Francisco. How dare you, um, you know, have these sanctuary city policies. 
and and he actually threw in some other comments about um, about people in in people who were in leadership of SFPD and other organizations, and and even made a couple of comments about how we're funding these sanctuary cities. And I said, "Gosh, you know, Uncle Larry," <laughs> because um, I said, "You know, here's here's my perspective." I've been doing a lot of family history on our family and trying to get a sense of where we're from and where, when everyone came over to the U S and I've found that on one side, we have somebody who came as recently as a generation ago, but on another side, we have people who go all the way back to the colonies. And what I think about is when they came to the U S um, how were they treated? Um, how, you know, when they didn't speak English, how did people in Montana treat them? How did people, um, when they got off the boat at Ellis Island, treat them? And, and I think about how lucky those of us who were born here are and, and that our job is actually to embrace those ideals of freedom and equality. And that's something that I feel like our grandfathers fought for. And so I feel like I'm honoring that in the work that I do. And he came back with the most thoughtful response about, you're right, I do share those ideals. And I guess we see it differently on some things, but you're right. And I appreciate you doing that work for our family. So I think the more that you can find those common points of interest, those common values, that brings everyone's um, defenses down and allows you to find a path forward. So maybe last question, what is the ideal political candidate at this point uh, in terms of, of skill sets or profile? Because uh, there are so many people running in so many different races and, and we're seeing spikes in everywhere from California to Texas to deep red parts of the Midwest and the Northeast. Uh, to you at this point in time, like, what do you feel like are the ideal mm-hmm. attributes of I someone I think there are two different office? questions in some ways. One is what's the candidate that is most likely to win? And there's another, which is who is that courageous candidate that's actually going to say the things that need to be said right now. Um, and I think, unfortunately, they're different. Um, but uh, for me, the ideal candidate of courage is the person who will come forward and um, and say the things that it, right now, in order to be a perfect winnable candidate, you focus on what your path is. You focus on where the constituencies are that you can pick up. But that's what's kind of adding to the divisiveness of our politics. And what we actually need are candidates who are willing to find those common values that we can all rally around. Um, And those things are much more complicated and much messier. But that's the kind of candidate that I think is the ideal candidate that actually helps us make true progress. Yeah, makes sense. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. Um, thanks for all you're doing up in the Bay. Thanks for being in the best fellows class possible of 2010, which is my <laughs> class as well. So nice job. I uh, appreciate you being on. appreciate you being nice to Los Angeles and we'll be nice to San Francisco for the day. And thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of The Zag. You can download all of them and there are a lot. We're over 36 or 7 now. I've lost track. There's so many. You can get them in the iTunes store, the Google Play store. Got a couple others coming this week. So stay tuned and we'll catch you soon.